Welcome back to Haddingtonshire Histories. In this episode, I will be chatting with my colleague, Dr. David Anderson, about the old inns of Dunbar. Hi, David. Hi, Dr. Ritchie. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? Oh, doing very well, thanks. That's great. Before we start, David, would you like to give our listeners a brief background on your good self? Sure. Uh, I'm from Dunbar, where I was born and brought up, uh, and I've worked for East Lothian Museum Service since the early 90s. I'm currently a museum assistant at John Muir's birthplace, but working from home given the current circumstances. So David, why are we highlighting old inns of Dunbar? Well, I got intrigued by something in the old statistical account of Dunbar. Now, that Mm -hmm. was recorded in 1791. And it was a national project to get statistical information about population, agriculture, economy and the like, done on a parish by parish basis. And many of the reporters were ministers, and that was true of Dunbar as well, where the Reverend George Bruce compiled the information. Okay. And as he went on getting all this very, very good detailed info about Dunbar, he couldn't help but not keep some of his Presbyterian leanings slipping in. And he began to inveigle against dram drinking and its injurious effects on the parish's 46 licensed alehouses. Now, that was too good a bit of information not to follow up. It, it intrigued me because elsewhere in the same account, there's information from which you can calculate that that was one alehouse for every 80 people. Wow. Man, woman or child. He also gives the amount of uh, barley and malt traded. Okay. And you can work out from that that the surplus that disappears between what was exported and what was milled is enough to make hundreds of thousands of pints annually. So there was a lot of ale flowing around. My goodness, and this was uh, a very long time before the temperance movement. Oh, right? well, well well, before temperance <laughs> set in. But you can see from the Reverend's comments that he's on the temperance angle. Mm-hmm. He's beginning to think that way. Because this injurious to health means he's, he's, he reckons that folk were spending far too long in the pub. But why so many pubs? I mean, I mean, well, well, that's it. They, they, they come into separate categories. Uh, if we can think about it. Okay. There were several okay. ways that you could get a, a drink, basically. Okay. You could go to a wine or spirit merchant. You could go to an inn or you could go to a public house. These are all kind of different places. Okay. Uh, all that would serve you a drink at, the, it, at uh, the time. Right, but so so this was purely for, for business, right? And and also uh, because of demand, would you say that? It's, it's, it's for demand. Uh, yes. It's, it stems from once upon a time, just about every household in the borough brewed their own. And then as things began to specialise, uh, some households set up as, as brewing as a speciality. It's the, it's the origin of purpose-built breweries. Some of them remained uh, brewing just for a single house, which became a public house. Others 
brewed and distributed their ale. Dunbar had a big export trade in ale, uh, as well as the malt that went into making it. So there was a lot of places that were satisfying a need in the community. I see. So it's a supply and demand case. Yeah, yeah. Many of these many of these places are very, very small. Uh, the original pubs would just be a single room in somebody's house. But they, they developed into separate premises as the 18th and 19th centuries wore on. How did you go about your research? Um, what, well, what sources did you look at? Well, it's, it's, it's not something I specifically targeted. And okay. not, I didn't look at any specific source, but I started to see things relevant and it just snowballed from there. Just taking notes when I was looking at borough records such as the licensing court, uh, general trades directories, itineraries, which were the earlier form of travel guides where uh, you needed to know where your next change of horses or where you were going to put up overnight were going to be. Yes. And then things like council minutes, the magistrates court, and specifically things like the borough deeds and processes. You know, that's, tra wow. that's tracking things like disputes, property transactions, debts. Uh, and then more recently, a great source that's opened up is the availability of online newspapers. And Definitely. A wealth of detail within that. Absolutely. So absolutely. all these go together give you an insight as to who was brewing and selling what, where and when. When you looked at those records, uh, was there an indication of, of uh, a need to keep tabs on, on the licensees? Yes, that really begins in the 19th century. And okay. the first detailed list of licensees dates from April in 1838. And it's the borough court and there's 58 applicants listed. 34 of them are vintners and the rest okay. are merchants or grocers. When you say 58, was this in Dun for Dunbar itself? Dunbar, it's, this is just in the borough this time. It's not the parish. There are other places outside the outside the borough within the parish that the minister inveigled against. But it's still a heck of a lot. It's 34 prospective pubs or inns within the limits of what was a tiny little borough at the time. Now, you used the word inveigled. Maybe, you know, what, what would be the layman's term uh, for that? He said that um, the uh, minister inveigled against dram drinking. Oh, right. He's, he's, he's basically uh, complaining. That's right. He's complaining. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, another word that you mentioned um, was vintner. Right. Vintner is a, a term for a wine merchant. Okay. But in Scotland in the 18th and 19th century, it's more or less being reserved for uh, publicans that do a bit of uh, off-sale trade on the side. So vintners are publicans vintners are Vintners are publicans, yes. Okay, so and it's... simply merchant is used for a wine merchant. And this is in the Scottish context? Yes. Yeah. I don't suppose this word is, is used anymore. Uh, one or two places up in Edinburgh when I was up there in the seventies still had vintner on the on the on the, on their signs. Were these inns um, 
easily identifiable uh, in the old records? Oh no, it's, it's, it's a devil of a job. Earlier, it's mostly the people and the profession that are named, but not okay. where they're carrying that profession out. So you may get something as ill, def even as late as 1838, you're only getting uh, in that village for mm -hmm. the people that are applying in West Barnes or at the shore or on the east side of the high street. So you get a rough idea of where they're operating from, but you don't get the specific location. So what would have been listed uh, on the records themselves? Just the name? S and, simply uh, the person's name. Yes. Whether they were a wine merchant, a grocer, a spirit dealer, a vintner. Okay or a publican, the, that term was coming in by 1838. But the address is simply, as I said, very, very general. A, lo a locality rather than a, an actual address. What's also listed is their cautioner. The cautioner? Yes, the cautioner was the person who actually stood a bond or a sum of money put aside in the event that there were going to be any complaints or fines levied. It was a way of ensuring that the prospective licensee both had a bit of capital behind them. Or so this is this person functions like a guarantor? A guarantor, that's the word we use yeah. now, a cautioner, a guarantor. Yeah. Absolutely. See, I've always been curious about how details were recorded in previous centuries, um, you know, in records such as valuation rules, censuses and other important lists and why it took time for more specific uh, and helpful details to be noted down. It's it's a factor of locality. <clears throat> a lot of the time these records were being recorded in the now. So everybody knew who everybody was in the local court, mm -hmm. in the local licensing court, in the uh, local community. So if Willie Robertson had a pub on the corner of Shore Street and Change Lane, everybody mm -hmm. knew where that was. And that would have been recorded, would it? Simply as Shore Street. Right. So name and Shore Street and you could go straight there or you just have to ask one or two people if you're a stranger to the town. That's right. Unlike the later records, uh, as in the valuation rules, where you actually get the number of the property only from 19, sorry, from 1880. That's right. And that came in as a stipulation for the forthcoming 1881 census that required all That's addresses right. to have a number. That's right. Before then, it's uh, down uh, Black's Close or down uh, Johnson's Close or things like that, or the Common Close, and you didn't know which size, but, a top or bottom, anywhere within right. it. But it was recorded as uh, an inn. Now, no, inn was a specific term reserved for what we would now call hotels. Right. Whereas uh, an alehouse was what we'd now call a public house. Yes. And there's a big difference between the two. Inns were established premises. They yes. had rooms, they offered meals, and they had function spaces. They also very frequently, certainly the premier in the, the leading inns of the borough had stables and horses available. 
because the purpose was as part of a relay of stations on their national road network, not just serving the local community, but serving travellers. What was the oldest inn in Dunbar that is? As far as we can tell, it was the George. Now, the building still stands, although it's not an inn or a hotel anymore. Mm-hmm. But carved above the lintel is built 1627. Which one is this in it's, Dunbar? Which building was this? It's in the middle of the high street, the former George Hotel. It's on the east side okay. and about six doors south of the uh, townhouse on the corner of what is now Cossar's Wind. Right. And Cossar's Wind itself recalls the name of a former licensee of the George Hotel. What else do we know about the George? Well, it wouldn't have been an inn in the first instance. 1627, there wasn't much communication between places. It's only into the 18th century that it becomes an established inn as coach travel begins to spread. And with coach travel, you read a regular station where you can change these horses, as I said. Which leads very nicely to my next uh, question. And you explained uh, the differences between uh, inns and um, pubs slash alehouses mm-hmm. um, uh, earlier. Uh, who visited or used uh, the inns uh, and and the alehouses, respectively. Right, the, the inns were the haunts of the, let's say, the upper and merchant classes, the prosperous townspeople, and those from out with town. So tra- travellers yeah. passing through, but also offering space to uh, what we may call travelling functionaries, the, the excise used to set up monthly to take a regular room in the George where people would come to deposit their data as to what had been traded that was accessible and uh, other functionaries like that. Sometimes even setting up a court within a space within the inn. Sometimes and very regularly being used as the venues for auctions or ropes. So you'd find the George being used to sell ships to sell household furniture, to hold meetings of sequestrations or sorting out the affairs of bankrupts or when businesses failed. So they were very busy places. I I imagine that they would need space for that, um, to accommodate. Yes, that's that's why they're the bigger premises. Not only have they got Mm -hmm. stabling behind, but they've got rooms that can be used not just for business events, but also for grand celebrations like dinners for clubs and societies or for groups of friends, uh, for national celebrations, for political meetings, hustings and so on. Yes. And um, so anybody would then be able to visit the alehouse? The alehouses were very much different. I should mention there's one intermediate between the two in Dunbar the old ship in down at the harbour. Mm-hmm. Now this afforded accommodation to the mariners that were trading from Dunbar. So you could keep on your boat or you could take a room at the ship in and use that for conducting business, acting a bit like a post restaurant as well. 
You could arrange for mail、uh-huh. to be dropped there, to pick, leave mail to be picked up later, to strike bargains, to fix your next cargo, or simply to wait out your next sailing time if the weather was inclement. But the re- the regular、um, inns, would, the regular alehouses, would be where the crews rather than the captains and officers、uh, went, and there was a plethora of them around the shore. But that would mean that they would be、uh, mixing or、uh, coming into acquaintance with、uh, people from the parish and local folk. Yeah, very much so.、Uh, You notice quite frequently that、uh, a lot of the mariners in Dunbar have obviously made connections because they were born in other places. Another thing that fascinates me is the names、um. of inns.、Uh, do you know? How the names of these these inns were chosen, and was it a frequent habit of perhaps、uh, subsequent publicans or innkeepers to change the names when whenever they took over a particular establishment? As usual, there's no simple answer here, but we, but we can make a few general observations. Some、okay. of them were named for a trade or a local organisation. And in Dunbar, things like the Mason's Arms and Forrester's Arms come to mind. In fact, in the middle of the nineteenth century, Dunbar and vicinity boasted four pubs, each of which was called the Mason's Arms. There was one very close to the new or Victoria Harbour, which was then building, and was quite、mm-hmm. obviously associated with the workforce that were deployed on that. There was another、mm-hmm. one off somewhere close to the old harbour. There was one in Belhaven High Street, and that seems to have been distinctly associated with what was quite a strong community of working stonemasons in Belhaven. That's where basically the local builders lived. And there was one out in West Barnes as well. The Foresters is a slightly na- later name. It was at the foot of Silver Street, and just along the way in、uh, Castle Street. Was the hall that belonged to, to the Foresters Friendly Society? So、yes. they're separate places, but there must have been a strong association that, having finished your Friendly Society meeting in the hall, then a stop for a quick drink in the Foresters Arms was the thing to do. And you know, Mason's Arms is is such a popular name.、Uh, Across across Scotland, I, I would imagine. Yes, and and when you mentioned Forrester's Hall, there's one in North Berwick. There's one、well. in Haddington. There was one. In, there were, there were、yes. several Forrester's lodges. Seven, I think, across East Lothian. Yes.、Uh, by the time they were coming into being, friendly societies, which had been organisations where groups banded together to provide mutual aid, had once. Been used to meet in pubs wherever there was a room available. That was to the benefit of the landlord, in that money was spent, but it was to the demerits of the friendly society, in that money was being spent in the pub. So they all gradually gained their own hall, their own premises. 
but the association with a particular pub and a particular friendly society that continued a long place long time in many places and in the bar the foresters is the prime example I see. Um, are there any other um, interesting traditional names? The Volunteers is another long-standing Dunbar pub. It's still there. Now it celebrates Dunbar's volunteer lifeboatmen. But again, when it was set yes. up, I would imagine around about 1855 it would gain the name, when the militia artillery and a volunteer arm of the British Army was formed. Uh, their hall is now the Royal British Legion Hall, which is itself a popular place for folks to go. But originally that would have been dry and the place to go for a drink after drill, after gun practice and the rest of it was the Volunteer Inn or the Volunteer Arms down in Victoria Street. Yeah, there are other names now vanished that were from a variety of traditions. The Royal Oak recalls the story of King Charles uh, hiding in a tree after defeated one of his battles. Uh, some of the other names like the White Swan, Grey Horse, or sometimes mm -hmm. it was called the White Horse, that might have just been as the whitewash in the building changed from pure white to grey. The landlord decided that rather than whitewash the building, it just changed the name to the Grey Horse from the White Horse. <laughs> we have no idea what the circumstances were. But but these are names that that um, that you find all across yeah. Scotland and and the rest an of the an UK. You know, the Grey Horse, the White Horse. Another good one is the Eagle, and that the celebrates Ensign Ewart's winning of a French Eagle standard during one of Wellington's battles. Uh, in fact, uh -huh. the Ensign Ewart pub up in the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Is, is another, yeah. but wherever you see an eagle, it's celebrating the defeat of the French. Are some of these names uh, still used for the pubs uh, today? Well, we, as I've mentioned already, we've got the volunteers, we've got the eagle, they're still yes. there. The castle at the top of the high street, that is Obviously, a, a, a local yeah, name, but many yeah. others have vanished. Uh, the White Horse is gone, the White Swan's gone, the Shepherd's Inn in Writer's Court, long gone, the Wheat, wheat mm. Sheaf. The Black Bull's an interesting one because it's still there, but it's just changed its name to the Bear and Bull, keeping up with the time. So in mm. parts looking back with the Bull, but in part looking forward to the Bear, which is celebrating the Dun Bear statue that's just been put up on the outskirts yes. of the bar. Yes, um, and I imagine these names will possibly be changed in the future or modified? Yeah, name, names perhaps? change all the time, perhaps on a whim, perhaps, as I've mentioned, with the, the change of nature of the building and the sign looking inappropriate. E e even the George <laughs> is tweaked I'm pretty certain that the original name is simply the George, and that is mm -hmm. a nod towards the Hanoverian dynasty, keep it, keeping on the right Absolutely. side. But Absolutely. in the 19th century, it suddenly appears as a St. George and the St. Andrew, sometimes even as just the St. Andrew. 
And then when Mr. Co Robert Cosser comes in, it's back to the St. George Inn. And finally, the St. George Hotel, which it what it was when it closed. Was there a new inn by any chance? The new inn was an attempt by its proprietor, who was the Earl of Lauderdale, who stayed at Dunbar House at the north end of the High Street, to develop some ground he'd purchased in the 1790s at the southwest end of the High Street. So the new inn was built in 1791 yes. as a purpose-built new inn. The premises fronting the street and down the back, stables and outhouses. Now, it seems to have been an attempt to spirit away the business that the George was enjoying. There's a persistent okay. story that the Earl had it mm -hmm. built because he'd fallen out with the Lorimers who ran the George Hotel. One of the story goes because of an affair between one of his daughters and one of the Lorimers. But wow, a scandal that there. probably doesn't have any grounds. It was just simply a business opportunity for the Earl. Okay. And initially it appears as a new inn and then as the 19th century dawns, it's in the records as the Lauderdale Arms Lauderdale under the various Arms. tenants that took on. Now these were respected tenants. Those that can be traced, one came all the way from Inverary to run the hotel, one from Dunfermline, and the people that had it longest, the Sangs, came from the George in Haddington. Were they especially commissioned? I, th or I think, I think they're this? applying and I think they are professional innkeepers and hoteliers looking for the next opportunity. They're, they're, cer they're yes, certainly I, advertising I this... in the press, in the papers, that their customers who knew them and thanking them for the business in their previous place, but looking forward to welcoming them at their new place of business. Yes, hence the, um, you know, in the Courier uh, and in, in other records, you, you sometimes uh, find that a certain individual um, is only proprietor of, say, the Star yep. in, in Haddington for X number of years, so three years, and then um, you cannot find them in, in the local census anymore. And, and this is something that we come across quite often uh, when helping people with their family history. Yeah, research. quite a lot of them as, as well will be doing midnight flits, particularly for the bigger places. Because they required a fair bit of capital to set up. And having invested in your furnishings, in your chaises or coaches, mm -hmm. in the stabling and the animals and the employees that you had to have them, not just in the inn, but your stable hands, your household servants and the rest of them. It's a fair bit of outgoing. Uh, so they tend to vanish precipitously or the next time you see them is actually mm. in the uh, borough courts where they find out they've been sequestered. Whoever had been backing them had called in the loan and they've had to foreclose. Well, it's it's not that easy to, to do a bit like fit these days <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to, to those times. Now, I hope this is not a silly question. 
but um, as we know in the history of our county, uh, brewers represented uh, as uh, significant a trade as tailors, gardeners, baxters, or bakers, and, and hammermen. And we have seen records uh, highlighting female publicans in the latter half of the 19th century, for instance. So were there any women involved in the brewing they business were, in Dunbar? And they in were what there, capacity? They were there from the year dot, really. In a working family, if the chap's out to work, the woman of the household for an income, if she has a hand for it, would brew more than was sufficient for the household. And then that was sold on quite often just from a room in the house, as I've mentioned before, and that's the origin of the alehouses. And over time, these get more yes. and more regulated, more and more licenses, licensed. Quite often you see a, a single woman or a widowed woman or a, a, a single woman with family beginning to brew herself as a brewster. And in Dunbar, they're all documented from the 18th century onwards because of the local tax that was applied to ale brewed within the borough. And okay. then from 1838, amongst the folk listed are uh, women publicans as well. There's an interesting account from the uh, Justice of the Peace Court in Haddington in 1751, when 20 separate people in Dunbar were had up for selling foreign spirits and foreign foreign liquors. So they'd obviously not paid excise on this and the excise was after them. Uh, four of these, more, a lot of these listed are brewers and amongst the brewers, four women are listed. Wow, four women. So a little bit of a business. A business on, on the, the side. side. So as well as brewing their own, they're also buying spiritous liquors uh, from the merchants of the town and uh, selling them on as well. And this is the, the excises found out yeah. about this and taken them to court. Um, th this is interesting because, um, again, relating back to family history and now with the Kirk Session uh, records being made available by uh, Scotland's people, uh, I I'm just thinking uh, about uh, people doing research, you know, for their family history, uh, they they are they would be uh, interested in real happenings uh, such as this. And do, so, do you know of any other memorable events in Dunbar's history that occurred or, or can be tied to any of Dunbar's old inns? Sometimes you begin to pick up on a bit of a saga. There was one. Uh, story that ran in the national press as two rival innkeepers played off against each other and eventually it found its way into the borough court as well. The problem was that George mm. Lorimer, John Lorimer of the George Inn uh, mm -hmm. decided that his custom was slipping because James Hindmarsh, who ran the Hay Arms, otherwise known as the Beldenford Inn, was advertising to entice away what would be natural traffic coming into Dunbar and I see. encouraging them to bypass Dunbar and stop instead at the Belton Ford Inn. So 
John thought James there. was drawing off his traveling custom. So they entered a war of words, basically. Uh, each put letters into the press and advertisements. Uh, so there's no such thing as suing each other. It, or, you know, it, it never came to that, if, but John won and James lost because by... 18, sorry, 1776, so sorry, 1767, John Lorimer okay. puts an advert in describing himself as Vintner, there's that word again, in Dunbar, having yes. now fitted up in an elegant and commodious manner the inn at Belton Ford, lately possessed by John, James mm. Hindmarsh. And he's acquainting the public such as will favour him of the custom either at Belton Ford or Dunbar may depend upon being accommodated in the best manner and at both places. So it, it driven his competitor wow. out, basically. And he didn't need yes. to keep the Belton Ford lease up for long. I think just a three year spell. And then it refers to being a local in, in other hands. Well, the final thing I, I was wondering about, um, I already asked earlier, is uh, is about whether the inns from the 18th and 19th century um, have survived and are still operational. Yes, in the Dunbar. 20th century was a process of change in the style of outlet and also demographic change. So traditional pubs began to reduce in number, but the number of licensed hotels grew. Temperance hotels also appeared that provided an alternative. Mm. In the 20th century, the number, second, the second half of the 20th century, the number of licensed hotels declined, but restaurants opened instead. In fact, those that survive yes. of the pubs offer food as well, or have specialised in yes. some other way. So they've either got a restaurant attached, or they do offer bar meals, or they offer something a wee bit different in the range of uh, drinks available, yes. that kind of thing. That seems to be true uh, across the board. It is. In, in so Australia. really... Yeah. Just the castle, the eagle, and the black bull, or we should call it the bear and bull on the high street, the volleys in yeah. Victoria Street, and the, the single pubs now in uh, Belhaven and West Barnes. Although, I must say that the West Barnes one seems to have struggled just recently in the past few years. Uh, yeah. One of the other drivers for uh, the reduction in pubs was the increase in number of social clubs with things like the Legion being a licensed premises, the Dunbar Castle Social Club, and uh, in the 60s and 70s and onwards, the uh, the Deer Park Social Club that was originally set up for the influx of workers to the Blue Circle Cement Works when that opened. That's a lot of interesting information to process, David. Thank you so yes, much for sharing. We never, um, we your never even got on to uh, Sabbath breaking or bona fide travellers. Wow, that, that will have to be um, another podcast chat, I think. But that's absolutely brilliant. Um, and, no, thank, and you, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. 
Um, well, that's it, folks. A little bit of history on the old inns of Dunbar. So do look out for more interesting conversations with expert guests on East Lothian's history in the rest of our podcast series. I hope you have enjoyed listening. And if you have any questions, please send an email to history at eastlothian.gov.uk. Thank you.